You're listening to Meritocracy. Hi, I'm Carrie Lee Merritt. Welcome to another episode of Meritocracy. On this season, we're talking about the 2020 election, the pitfalls and perils of living in a post-Trump America. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Brad DeLong. Dr. Brad DeLong is a professor of economics at UC Berkeley, a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research, a web blogger at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth, and a fellow of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. He received his BA and his PhD from Harvard University. He joined UC Berkeley as an associate professor in 1993 and became a full professor in 1997. Professor DeLong also served in the U.S. government as Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policy from 1993 to 1995. He worked on the Clinton administration's 1993 budget on the Uruguay Roundtable of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, on the North American Free Trade Agreement, on macroeconomic policy, and on the unsuccessful health care reform act. Before joining the Treasury Department, Professor DeLong was Danziger Associate Professor in the Department of Economics at Harvard. He has also been a John M. Olin Fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research, an Assistant Professor of Economics at Boston University, and a lecturer in the Department of Economics at MIT. His areas of study include comparative technological and industrial revolutions, finance and corporate control, economic growth, the rise and fall of social democracy, the long-term shape of economic history, the political economy of monetary and fiscal policy, financial crises and 20th century macroeconomics, behavioral finance, history of economic thought, the rise of the West, and the causes of the Great Depression. I know you'll enjoy this interview. Please look forward to Dr. Brad DeLong. Hi, I'm Carrie Lee Merritt. Welcome to another episode of Meritocracy. Today, I'm here with Dr. Brad DeLong. Brad, thank you so much for being here with us Hello, today. Well, I'm extremely happy to be here. I've wanted to talk to you ever since I saw your book, and this provides an ample excuse to do so. Well, before we really delve into the political talk, I wanted to ask a couple of questions about you and your background. I know you come from Washington, D.C. Can you tell us a little bit about what drew you to economics and even the economic history aspect of your education? Um, well, you know, one's intellectually omnivorous when one's younger, and you're taking lots of things, and you're curious and would like to take more. Economics was the closest you could come that promised to use both literary skills and quantitative skills. Um, and so it seemed to me that that might be some kind of a sweet spot. Um, and it was also very, very interesting. I was lucky enough to have three very, very good teachers um, in my first three economics classes. Actually, well, four teachers, all of whom were great, but three of whom were by far greater than the others. Um, the first is Rick Erickson, who's now in the Carolinas and so forth, a specialist in the Soviet economy. Um, the second was John Ginnikopoulos, a specialist in finance and microeconomic theory now at Yale. The third was the late Marty Feldstein, alas, um, who was absolutely mind-blowing. And the fourth was Roger Guénery, 
um, who was, I think, would have looked very good in anything but the company of the other three. Um, and so it was a wonderful subject to find out about um, in my first year of college. So you're not the child of academics? My grandfather is was a professor before he became a Marine, a CIA agent, um, a Beltway bandit, and then went back to being a dean, dean of political science at American University. I have a great, great uncle Abbott, who actually was an economic historian, and who was the dissertation advisor of some of my dissertation advisors, which was amusing. Um, the feeling is if you're going to the natural sciences weren't peoply enough, history would seem like a wonderful thing to do, especially since when I graduated from college in 1982, I took one look at the 11% unemployment job market and turned around and ran back immediately to the university. Mm -hmm. But I happened to notice that um, my junior year, the people who were applying to assistant professorships in the program and the major I was in, to assistant professorships, of history and social studies were all 35 and had written two books. And the people applying for the assistant professorships of economics and social studies were all 25 and had one half written paper and good recommendations. And so it seemed that um, economics and new history provided a lot more options for not worrying too much about where that actual food was going to come from, as opposed to history where it was already plain that the job market was horrible and only getting worse. So I went off and became an economics PhD and there fell in with another bunch of absolutely wonderful people. Um, I already knew Larry Summers from back when he was, when my roommate Andre Schleifer was his research assistant. And he was wonderful, but there were a bunch of others. There was Claudia Golden, there was Jeffrey Williamson, there was Peter Tamman, there was David Landis. It seemed a wonderful life, and they seemed to be having lots of fun and also doing lots of good as the collective memory of humanity um, and could have done more had they been listened to more. Um, so that seemed to be a fun type of person to try to become, and so I set off to do it. Was there a political aspect that was drawing you in as well? You you definitely saw the policy side of it and wanted uh, some power as to that? You know, the general view, I suppose, was that there's a... that there was a sensible center um, which was interested in equitable growth um, with both the focus on growth and also on the reasonable, equitable, equitable, reasonably equitable part of it. And that that sensible center was very much interested in what kinds of human, social, and societal arrangements worked. And so you could sit in the center and you would have proposals and then you could call for bids from the ideologues of the left or the right as to who was willing to offer the most in terms of support for policies that might actually work. Mm -hmm. um, and so align yourself with the more left or the more right, you know, put things in more left or more right language, because um, the key was the actual policies, was the actual attempting to tweak human social arrangements for the better. And you could put that in lots of ideological frames. 
right? Now, there's a universal basic income is that a left-wing socialization of the economy as a whole, or is it Milton Friedman's negative income tax in slightly different clothing? Um, an attempt to empower the poor by giving them social power in the form of money without destroying their incentive to work hard um, without producing negative cultural consequences. You, know, you can sell a UBI as one, um, you can sell a UBI as the other. Depending on who you are and who your allies are, it can go either way. And so that's where the, the humanities and messaging and language become so important. And you so, talked about yeah. literature drawing you in as well. What, what yeah. did you grow up reading or what really influenced you as a writer? I don't have nearly enough consciousness of what words I'm using in the moment. That who was it? Someone was commenting on my weblog about you know, ignorant ignorance, knowledgeable ignorance, um, unconscious knowledge, and conscious knowledge, right? And conscious knowledge being the fourth, I suppose, at the most, I'm an unconscious knowledge, which is better than knowing that you're ignorant, um, and better than being ignorant that you're ignorant, than Dunning Kruger, Dunning Krugering yourself. Lots of science fiction novels uh, when I was a teenager. Being absolutely wowed by Fernand Braudel's three-volume Civilization and Capitalism in terms of how dense you can make the allusions and yet advance the argument. Snarky dialogues that John Maynard Keynes conducts with himself and his readers. Robert Skidelsky has something in the Keynes biography about a unique combination of passion, knowledge, insight, and rhetoric. Reading Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain um, after graduating in the European summer with a Eurail pass. You can always read another 100 pages of The Magic Mountain as your train goes from X to Y, and that's exactly the right time and place to do it. I suppose also an increasing sense that academic econ economists write badly and their papers are train them to write badly, and so as a result, no one reads anything. Um, that people's papers actually get percolate out into the academic community through the seminars that they give. Mm -hmm. And then if something gets on a graduate reading list, a professor will lead you through it. But otherwise, the written work is just this you know, pyramidal monument um, and the feeling that maybe one could reach a broader audience by trying to write in a more lively style, a more interactive, you know, um, a something to grab the attention of readers and keep them there. And that seems to have worked, or at least worked somewhat. Given your own personal background, have, have there been any real struggles or anything just amazing that's happened to you? that either gives you kind of hope or or strength to get through the kind of dystopian you know reality we're living through right now at this given time very very lucky person i had wonderful parents um there's enormous amounts of social power um in the family background of one form or another um you know when one's young one's shy and insecure but most of that is simply being young, yeah. and that young people are supposed to be shy and insecure because you don't want them taking over 
trying to take over leadership um, because they got to learn how to do things and they got to learn what the world is like. Um, and so seeing that as seeing being shy and insecure when young as a source of struggle rather than as a phase that one should adapt to, I think misconstrues the situation. And other than that, you know, I was very, very lucky. Um, perhaps this was pointed out to me most at my 35th college reunion when uh, Seth Boyd um, got me and three other professors on a panel. And we two were the only two private school people on the panel of five. And we two were also the only two who were nth generation college graduates. Oh, the first college graduate um, in my ancestral line I know of, I think, was Thomas Wyatt the Elder, who introduced the sonnet form to England. Um, and then there's the horrible tragedy of his son, who was the cat's paw for Protestant nobles under Queen Mary the First Tudor, who objected to his Spanish marriage. And they sent Wyatt out as the front person to see if they could raise a rebellion to turn Mary into a constitutional monarch. He got chopped on, on Tower Hill as a result. Uh, so kind of going to college and understanding universities is you know, deeply embedded in the family. Well, my great grandmother, Eleanor Lawson Carter Lord was in Radcliffe's first graduating class of 1899. And how much easier a time Seth and I had in university right, taking to it like ducks to water and going quack, 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 quack. I'd never really gotten that until on this panel, the other three began talking about how they were felt themselves subject to enormous amounts of imposter syndrome and still do. Do you experience that as well? I would say twice. When I was in the Clinton administration in the early 1990s, and I found myself debating some of two of Newt Gingrich's henchmen in various things. And I thought, you know, um, just what am I doing here? I'm out of my depth. Why have they put me up here? I have no idea of what I'm doing. And I think in retrospect, I did not do too well because what I should have done is simply have been myself and say, you know, um, I'm here as a kind of sensible centrist here to tell you what will work and what won't. And why don't you ignore these ideologues um, off here to the stage? Because they are not attempting to inform you. They're attempting to drive you like cattle. Mm -hmm. And had I been more like that, I would have been more successful in those two things. And I hope I've learned something from that. But you were very young, too, right? Do you I was really not attribute it to, to I was that? 15 or 20 years younger than they were. But then the right thing to do is to remember to wear your glasses and to stare down at the paper and recite numbers. That you're not to try to demonstrate that you're, the artfulness of it is that you're artlessly don't even know how to try to manipulate them rhetorically. And you're just presenting information. One of my favorite tweets ever, I think I've told you this, was what, about a year, year and a half ago, mm -hmm. you tweeted about the fact that liberals really need to either start listening to and following leftists or become leftists themselves. 
And so I just wanted you to address that. You you blogged about it briefly, but but what yeah, really uh, made you a, shift your um, thinking? There is an interview with Zach Beauchamp, um, who probably doesn't pronounce it Beauchamp, but probably pronounce it Beauchamp or something. I should find out on Vox.com. Um, now essentially, the point is that there um, is no Republican policy community. Um, the anywhere to the right of, call it still, the Bob Rubin wing of the Democratic Party to have conversations with. You know, that Barack Obama. Um, Barack Obama decided um, that the health care plan that he would put forward would be essentially Mitt Romney's um, on the grounds that the Republicans would then get behind it and be interested in making it work because Obama would really be doing Mitt Romney's health care plan. And the natural thing for the Republicans to do would be to stand up and say, well, Barack Obama has adapted the health care plan Mitt Romney would have proposed had Mitt Romney been elected president. We're good for this. This is a victory for us. We've turned him from the raving socialist nut that he was into one of us. Um, let's make this thing work. Let's roll up our sleeves and make this work. And that is not what they did. Right? That basically Barack Obama rolls into office with Mitt Romney's health care policy, with John McCain's climate policy, with Bill Clinton's tax policy, and George H.W. Bush's foreign policy. Mm -hmm. And would Bush, Romney, or McCain say a single good word about anything Barack Obama ever did over the course of eight solid years? No, they effing did not. Um, they tried to break it. Um, they tried to make sure that Obama was perceived as a failure and to the extent that they could do it, that he actually was a failure. And the fact that that made the economic, political, and sociological development of the country substantially a failure as well over those eight years was not something that then was of any concern you know, to Mitt Romney, to George H.W. Bush, and to John McCain. And, you know, great as they are relative to the current occupant of the White House and to his particular coterie, um, I think they proved back then that they really were not the friends of America um, and were not the friends of human progress. And so the only people to join us as friends are the people to our, le to our left. And so we have to talk to them and listen to them and hope that together we can persuade the voters to give left-wing policies that have a good chance of working a chance um, so that we can no longer be a country that's increasingly approaching failed state status and instead scramble our way back to something less embarrassing, something more functional, something more like Denmark or Germany or South Korea or Taiwan or Japan as a functioning society that gives people the opportunity to take advantage of the enormous wealth of technological and organizational knowledge that the human race has right now.
Given your political work, turning towards the election that we're facing right now, what would be your main advice to the Democrats in these last few weeks leading up to the election? What, what points should they really, really be driving home in order to change things in this country? Well, at the moment, they should vote. Um, turn out people to vote. Vote. Um, assemble as broad a tent as possible, all up and down the ticket, um, and vote. There will be plenty of time to argue what should be done after January 4th, after January 21st. Um, but in the meantime, the necessity is to vote, to get other people to vote, to roll up the score, to get as many good Democratic people into office as possible. And anyone who thinks that it's time to start taking any actions at all that might, it, might make it more difficult um, to roll up the score, or that might increase the chances of Donald Trump's winning re-election by creating some form of internal disharmony right now. Um, you know, that lots of people did that in 2016. There were an awful lot of people from Dean Baquet and Maureen Dowd at the New York Times to James Comey at the, CIA, at the FBI um, to Bernie Sanders. You can run lots of people up and down who said Hillary Rodham Clinton has a bag, has it in the bag. Mm -hmm. So I can do her damage right now in order to better position myself for having a better life in like, um, 2017. And a few of them, but surprisingly few, have actually looked in the mirror and engaged with what they did and how much responsibility they bear for the current absolute effing cluster FFF. But not many. And right now, there are some people who I see doing the same thing. Um, like I'm looking at you, Robert Kuttner, and I'm looking at you, David Dianne, um, to argue that Joe Biden has the wrong people working for him right now and that they should ghetto out of the campaign as fast as possible because you don't like them is really not helpful at all right now. Um, the important thing is to maintain the unity of the front of all never-Trumpers, um, and then say afterwards, we are going to have a reasonable, a polite, an informed, a progressive, and an intelligent discussion about what America needs to do, mm -hmm. rather than to try to do a little damage to our chances of running up the score now to position yourself slightly better come next January. So unity, unification, and keep everyone's eye focused on everything that's going wrong um, in America today, and with a rather long historical look. Donald Trump may be largely responsible for the fact that the United States has 300 coronavirus deaths per 100 million people per day, while Canada has zero. Donald Trump is not responsible for the fact that life expectancy at birth in the United States today you know, lags life expectancy in Switzerland by five years. Um, that the U.S. life expectancy is below Peru, Colombia, Chile, Jordan, and Sri Lanka. 
and only a year greater than that of China, that other things that Donald Trump have done that have done that to us, and we should fix them as well. So the big question then becomes, how do you foresee fixing this? Do you think it needs to be done through amendments? Do you think it needs to be done through a series of different acts? I know you're obviously a scholar of the Great Depression era, which uh, in some ways offers us very, uh, you know, a very good template to look at not only what to do, but what not to do. What would you recommend? I think that the legislative peculiarities of Congress actually give an opportunity to do powerful things with even the 50 senators um, without requiring anything that can be perceived as substantial norm breaking. Um, so if I were Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, um, I would assemble my caucuses and say that on January 4th, we are going to start the reconciliation process and we are going to do a large carbon tax. We are going to do a universal basic income and we are going to do Medicare for all. We are going to do these things because we can do these things through the reconciliation process with a house majority and with only 50 votes in the Senate. And we do these things not because these are the policies that we necessarily want, but because they're policies that can be done in a straightforward fashion via reconciliation in a way that no cynical and cowardly Supreme Court majority can easily overturn. And after we do that, that then becomes the status quo. And all of a sudden, the filibuster is then our friend rather than our enemy. Um, that do a carbon tax, do Medicare for all, um, do a universal basic income, and then bargain back from that using the legislative process to whatever policies we actually want to see the United States adopting over the next four to eight years. Um, the one place where I'd make an exception of norm breaking is I think that the Supreme Court needs to be enlarged. That, back to the court packing plan. Yeah, that Merrick Garland needs to have his seat mm -hmm. and you know, the Trump appointees need to be neutralized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if they want to resign now in order to keep the court at nine, that would be fine. If they don't, we have to temporarily expand the court to 12 for a while and then maybe let it drift back to not. You obviously think very, very deeply about policy. Thinking about the judiciary, do you support uh, limits, term limits? I would say a one-year, if I were running it, I would say a 20-year staggered Supreme Court terms. And I'd also say that you can't, that you have to be at least 45 or 50 to get appointed. It really should be a career-ending job. Um, that there was some thought about this problem back when the Federal Reserve was founded, which was why they gave them 14-year terms. But there, too, the whole thing went badly awry. That too many people now take Federal Reserve appointments as a way of ticket-punching themselves and then going out to make money in finance. And so I think Federal Reserve Board appointments should also go to people 50 or over. Um, only that these are supposed to be career-ending things. 
when one is taking on more of a supervisory role rather than jobs one takes in order to please one's future employers. Um, or jobs one takes thinking one will then be a dead hand shaping the future of the country for the next 30 years. Um, let's appoint young people who really do not have a judicial temperament at all to the Supreme Court is a huge disaster waiting to happen. You know, a judge is not supposed to be a student of the law, but of justice and of society as well. And to be looking not at what the law has been, but about what people think justice is and reconciling those two things. And you've got an awful lot of Republicans on the bench now for whom that is simply not a consideration. Before we start really getting into more on the federal level, though, I want to pull back for a minute and talk about the local level, because I think that really gets overlooked mm -hmm. um, so much. And it's so, so important, especially here in the South, because mm -hmm. state policies continue to crush us, as you know. Right. What two or three economic or labor policies can you see working at a local or state level that might actually make change in people's lives? On the West Coast and in the Northeast, um, what you really do need is you need the war against NIMBYism. Right? Um, you need a lot more housing constructed for an, a denser America than we have now. Um, that if housing is cheap and affordable, a huge amount of other stuff becomes possible um, for people that simply isn't possible these days. You know, that. Um, like David Otter at MIT has a recent series of papers pointing out that once you include housing and commuting costs, it really is not the case that if you're in the bottom two-thirds of the American population, you have anything to gain from moving to the big city. Mm -hmm. you know, that simply trying to lead a semi-normal life chews up money at an amazing pace. And, you know, it chews up money at an amazing pace because my good fellow left-wing citizens of Berkeley um, are incredibly eager to block housing construction of all kinds because it might change the character of their neighborhood, by which they mean the um, aesthetic architectural character um, rather than, you know, the racial or the ethnic or the class character, or at least though that's what they think they mean. But it does have very powerful effects in making San Francisco Bay Area a much more unequal place, a place worthy of some 19th or 17th century plutocracy, mm -hmm. rather than of a social democracy in the 21st century. And it's something that the good citizens of the Bay Area, we have done to ourselves. Do you know, like right now, I'm seeing lots of ads for Proposition 21, you know, um, the rent control kind of initiative on the California ballot this November. And, you know, something that doesn't increase the number of dwelling units within easy commuting distance of Silicon Valley, San Francisco, and Oakland. Um, is simply going to reward the people who happen to get lucky in the rent control lottery 
rather than permanently change the way the Bay Area works in terms of making it a place that Americans can move to. Mm -hmm. the, the past generation is the first generation in American history in which the population has not been moving to wherever economic opportunity is. And that's largely because the NIMBYists um, mm -hmm. have won over the past 40 or 50 years and need to be scotched. Where there isn't a NIMBY problem, there is an infrastructure problem and there's an education problem. And yeah, I know that when Jerry Brown started the movement to make people going to college, to public colleges pay, um, that his view was that he was facing tax revolts, that there were lots of demands on state funding, um, that the people going to Berkeley or UCLA or whatever, they were probably going to be richer than your average citizen. So why should they get a subsidized education too? The problem is that um, even though going to college makes you richer in America, it's a very risky thing to do if your career doesn't turn out right. Mm -hmm. And so right now, with all of our high public college costs, we have a huge number of people who ought to be going to college, who aren't. And you know, because they aren't, not only are they not having more opportunities in their lives, but they're crowding into the non-college jobs and pushing down non-college wages for everyone, uh, diminishing opportunity for everyone in the top two-thirds, the bottom two-thirds of the population. Um, so I think we need to bite the bullet and we need to make, to return back to the Clark Care view of education that public education should be free of tuition for as much of it as you want. Mm -hmm. And if we do that, we restore American opportunity and maybe get into a situation in which we're no longer kind of putting downward pressure, so much downward pressure on the bottom two thirds of our wage distribution. Mm -hmm. um, plus lots of people like going to college if it's not in a plague year. Um, you know, plus people genuinely do learn stuff and genuinely are better able to manage themselves and manage the society they're in, um, if they have. So basically doing for America what Iowa did for high school back in 1900. Um, this is something that Claudia Golden and Larry Katz have been arguing we should do for three decades now. It's long past time. And then, of course, there's the public investment and public infrastructure. That if we don't have societal systems that work, um, we shouldn't be surprised if people can't find jobs that pay them well. Do you ever envision a federal jobs guarantee passing or even something like a state level jobs guarantee? Do you see that working, especially in these rural areas where you pretty much have monopsonies? By, by companies, if there is a company at all. The only thing worse than having a company town is having a town with no company, um, another company left. Now the birds close to gave that with West, when Robert Byrd was Senate Majority Leader, close to gave that to West Virginia, right? To, to pick up every single federal paper processing job he could and move it to West Virginia. Um, and I think it did an awful lot of good. Um, 
that as long as you were clean and sober and would show up on time, you could get a job working for the Social Security Administration um, you know, in West Virginia. And I think it did the place a lot of good. It did not um, do much good for its politics in some strange way I do not understand. There should be WPA-like jobs available to everyone, mm -hmm. right, who wants. Um, that you should be allowed to be unemployed and looking for a job. You should be allowed to be working for something like the WPA if kind of that's what you want to do. God knows there is so much stuff that we could have be do we could be doing. And the old problem that the jobs won't be productive. Um, well, one of the downsides of the internet is that our worker surveillance technologies are getting better and better. Um, that we deputize someone to stand out on the street corner and give people tests for blood pressure and for blood glucose levels as they go by and hand them out free pharmaceuticals and say, you know, this is unhealthy. Um, you need to get your blood pressure down. Um, this is unhealthy. You need to get your blood sugar down. You know, here's an extract of French lilac to help you immediately, and here's a ticket so you can go actually see a doctor about a diet and exercise and possibly a medication plan. There's huge amounts of coaching work for, of life coaching work for Americans that gets done in other countries but that we do not do that could employ an awful lot of people. Then there's the question of once you have something like a jobs guarantee, what do you do with people who kind of um, will not show up um, for their guaranteed job? But you know, there that's they're not that's not going to be a very big problem. You know, that almost everyone wants to feel useful. Mm -hmm. And as long as the public sector jobs are perceived as being useful, um, I don't think that would be a significant problem. Um, certainly, since 1980, with the exception of four good years in the 1990s, we have failed to produce an America with enough jobs for there to be even a little bit of upward pressure on wages. Um, we failed to produce a situation in which pricing power is with workers who are valued by their employers rather than workers who are terrified lest their employers decide to get rid of them. And I definitely think it's time to try some other set of arrangements. Um, to try to rebalance the labor market that, you know, has not produced wage increases for an awful long time now. So if uh, a politician called you back to work uh, within the political arena, would you, would you go do it again? One has an obligation to do so if one is asked. Right? Um, That's good. That if it's they decide you are the best person for this particular job, God knows their job is hard enough. Mm -hmm. And God knows they don't need people making their jobs even harder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's unlikely on the Democratic side, the bench is enormous and deep. Um, on the Republican side, the bench is extremely shallow, but also, you know, expertise is not really wanted. Mm -hmm. 
um, that as near as I can see, the total effect on the Trump administration of the professional economists who've gone to work for it has been that the economists neutralized the epidemiologists mm -hmm. with their predictions that fighting the coronavirus was too expensive to do in any way it would be over by May 15th. Turn the scenario and, and somehow we're in a post-Trump America. Somehow it happens we're in a post-Trump yeah. America. Lots and lots and lots of cleanup to do, both at home and abroad. Mm -hmm. You know more about macroeconomics. What do we need to do to kind of get America back on track? I know there's so many things, but just, just pick one or two to give us an idea of what to focus on. Infrastructure week um, would be a very good thing to start. You know, my old boss, Alicia Manel, was pointing to America's infrastructure deficit back in the late 1980s when she was still you know, um, research director for the Boston Federal Reserve Bank. And back then, people would, she would get lots of arguments from Republican economists about how, no, we didn't need all that much infrastructure. We didn't have an infrastructure deficit. I don't think anyone who has been anywhere else in the world um, believes that now. Um, so certainly rebuilding America's infrastructure to properly suit a 21st century country um, is definitely called for. Um, certainly um, actually getting, you know, as you say, the, the six-year life expectancy gap between Americans and others, and it's not because we're not spending enough on health care, it's because we're spending an awful lot on insurance adjusters and on, you know, people working for doctors to try to run interference um, with the insurance adjusters. The last appointment that I went to when my daughter turned 18, and this was now almost a decade ago, with her pediatrician in the office, they had one doctor, three nurses, and then four paper pushers. And the four paper pushers were matched by four paper pushers at the insurance companies. Mm -hmm. The insurance companies trying to figure out a way that the insurance should be denied for whatever was being done, and the paper pushers pushing the paper to make sure that insurance would be allowed. Um, if we could actually get healthcare delivered to the people who need it, we could close a huge chunk of that life expectancy gap, you know, um, fairly quickly. And we should definitely do so. And then there's the fact that we cannot afford not um, to. That my old teacher Larry Summers' argument that moving to a regime of sub 2% per year inflation um, in a time of increasing monopolization and increasing returns to scale produced an economy that is in a position of um, what he calls secular stagnation, but one in which I think it's better to view it as a safe asset shortage. Um, in which there aren't enough savings vehicles regarded as safe for the people who have the money to be willing to commit the money to projects for investment and human betterment. Mm -hmm. And that means if, you know, um, 
if planned savings are in excess of what appears to be profitable private investment, then the system is going to rebalance itself as one that has high unemployment unless, except for those bubble times when Wall Street is irrationally exuberant, or the government has to step in and say, you know, um, if the private sector isn't going to spend money on investment projects, the public sector will. Mm -hmm. You know, that as Karl Marx said, that earlier um, social systems than modern bourgeois capitalism did not have an unemployment or a business cycle problem. Because if there were extra resources, if there were extra workers lying around, um, you could always say, let's build a pyramid, mm -hmm. or let's build a cathedral, or let's build a palace or let's take all the young men and send them off to France to fight a war. Um, that the financial constraint was not viewed as a separate thing keeping you from putting everyone to work. Um, but instead, there were ways around. War now, 100 years after John Maynard Keynes pointed out that the financing constraints are not different than the actual resource constraints. And so we should not let financing constraints keep us from putting everyone back to work. Speaking of finance constraints, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the vast, vast racial wealth gap in this country. And it's obviously going to just compound as mm -hmm. uh, this economic distress continues uh, post-pandemic mm -hmm. and during the pandemic. What do you propose to do to help start closing that gap? Universal basic income um, would be a good start. Attempting to move toward universal college education uh, would be a good start. My hope, or at least my belief, has largely been following William Julius Wilson, that just when we started to make progress on the strictly racial and strictly caste-driven discrimination gap. Um, just when race, just when pure race began to decline, pure class began to grow. Mm -hmm. And that if we could actually get that the declining significance of race was matched by the rapidly rising significance of class. And if we could get ourselves back to um, say, a situation like it was like the early 1960s, when George Romney's house had four more rooms, say, than yours did and wasn't a better neighborhood than in the situation we have today, where Mitt Romney owns seven houses mm -hmm. and where he was nixed for being John McCain's running mate in 2008 because the strategist said, if our two nominees together own more than 20 houses together, um, that's simply a bridge too far. Um, then um, the racial wealth gap will erode in response to that. I may well be wrong. It is one exercise I occasionally give to the American economic history students is say, okay, let's look at the upward trajectory into American society and income terms of all the immigrant groups, depending on where they arrive. Mm -hmm. And then last, let's look at African-Americans. Mm -hmm. 
and you know every other group the graph points up in relative terms um, African Americans it does not you know right now we have a brand new assistant professor here Elora Deron Oncourt um, here at Berkeley who I actually have not seen in person in um, in like two years and probably won't and her big job market paper is about the great African-American migration to the North mm -hmm. and about how, say, um, in 1950, if you're moving from the South to the North and wondering where you want to educate the next generation of African-Americans, where you want to raise them, that both Baltimore and Salt Lake City look like absolutely wonderful places mm -hmm. um, to bring up a young Black African-American boy in the United States. But by 1975, Salt Lake City still is, and Baltimore is not. Mm -hmm. yeah, that is the political, economic, sociological reaction of America's urban north to the Great Migration in large numbers was absolutely poisonous mm -hmm. um, in places to which very large numbers of African Americans went, and even in places that still look good in terms of the numbers places like Salt Lake City and Portland. It looks good in terms of the aggregate numbers, but kind of there's something wrong with police culture in Portland, um, just as much as something wrong with police culture in Baltimore. So I think my reaction to our current racial crisis is A, to listen, and B, to be somewhat paradoxically profoundly hopeful, because it's not that things are worse now. But it's that people finally think that there's enough of a possibility that things might become better, that it is worth speaking out. Um, yeah, this this past summer has been the most hopeful I've been about the situation for a really long time to see mm -hmm. the movement really build. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much. I know I don't want to take too much of your time. A couple of, of last few questions. Huh? And you know, the people at home, people listening have gotten an amazing education from you today, basically for mm -hmm. free. So what organizations do you support? Uh, what charities, organizations would you like to tell people to go out and look for or, and help either you know, with their time or their money? I've always been somewhat addicted to the Heifer Project um, on the grounds that it gets animals uh, to people who can use the animals. Admittedly, the cute goats are going to be slaughtered for meat when they grow up um, rather than um, the family pets. But, you know, that is that if one looks at one of the wonderful things humanity did about biotechnology eight millennia ago was domestication. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that there are still lots of places around the world in which people do not, people doing agriculture do not have enough animals mm -hmm. um, is I think yeah. an important one. I also would urge, um, Homeless housing projects, wherever you are. Um, if you get someone homeless into a housing situation, life all of a sudden becomes much, much easier for them and their ability to manage their other problems. Mm -hmm. But there are an awful lot of people who are perfectly functional in our daily, in our world, um, who if they were to lose their housing would rapidly spiral downward. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so I think reducing the homeless population and getting homeless people into housing as fast as possible is something very much worth doing. Otherwise, um, otherwise, the big shifts in, that is modern social democratic governments are capable of deploying resources on a truly vast scale. And what one really wants to do with people who need charity is to give them social power to decide what charity they really do need and the information. Um, the information to decide what charity they really do need and the social power to get that charity themselves. And so I think voting for social democratic politicians is the thing that has actually done the most good over the past hundred years. The goats to, to people help to empower women as well. So a little, I'll, I'll list all those charities um, mm -hmm. with the podcast and with the YouTube so that people can link up to them. One last question. Mm -hmm. So if you could offer just one piece of advice to the general American public about how to try to heal our psychological wounds from the past and move forward together, uh, what would that be? Turn off your cable news. Um, and I'd also say, turn off your Facebook. Um, you know, that there are, there are your friends and your fellow citizens who want to help you. And then there are the people who want to scare the piss out of you to glue your eyeballs to the screen so they can then sell you fake diabetes cures and overpriced gold funds. Um, and um, they are not your friends. Uh, you do not want to have them live rent-free kind of in your brain um, at all. And so realizing who's attempting to scare you because it's their business model um, and thus who you should not let live rent-free in your brain and should ignore is, I think, the most important um, of lessons that you can learn in trying to deal with the information environment right, in which you find yourself. That Noah Smith calls it the age of shouting and figuring out how to keep your mind from being polluted by people who want you to think badly um, is the, the most important form of self-care to undertake right now, given the changes that technology is bringing to us. That's profound and something that all of us need to think through, I think. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Brad DeLong, so much for being with us today. Uh, again, Carrie Lee Merit Meritocracy, you guys go ahead and hit subscribe on YouTube. Hit subscribe Smash on the podcast button. channels. And I'm going to link up to uh, Brad's All website. Yeah. Go ahead and follow his, his blog. It's wonderful. Look mm -hmm. for him on Twitter, at mm -hmm. DeLong. And we'll also link to all the charities he talked about. Sure. Thanks sure. so much. Thank you very much for having me. Okay. Have a good day. Uh, goodbye. Have a good day.